second week of this series called Philemon, the art of reading Paul's letters. Last week, we looked at this, this idea of historical context. What does that mean for us as a church? And, um, and then today, I want to tackle something that is normally not really talked about in the church, um, but I want to talk about this issue of slavery in the Bible and, and what happened um, with that issue 2,000 years ago. Um, so, Harry Cohn, he used to lead Columbia Movie Studios. Uh, he had, you know, he wasn't a Christian, but he kind of grew up in a, a Christian family, but he and his brother left faith, and they were just doing their own thing. His brother was in New York, and one day they're on their phone, and um, Harry's brother starts criticizing him, and just complain like, Everything, and it was almost like his brother was just having a bad day, but he was criticizing everything that Harry was doing, the movies that Columbia Studios was producing, all this stuff. And finally, the brother in New York said, I bet you don't even know the Lord's Prayer. And Harry said, what does that have to do with anything? He goes, well, I bet you just don't know it. And he said, are you kidding me? Of course I know the Lord's Prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And Harry said, oh, I apologize. I didn't really know. I didn't really think you knew the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> so if you're not familiar with the Lord's Prayer, that's not it. Um, so as much as we know our Bible, uh, sometimes the church is guilty of something maybe even worse than than that, not knowing our Bible. Sometimes, many times, in modern, the modern church takes the Bible out of context. And we make it say something that it was never meant to say. Have you ever had somebody take your own words out of context? And you're like, no, that's not what I said. You don't understand. The, remember the context in which I said this thing. Now you know what it fe God feels like quite often. Uh, Jesus wants his words understood just as we want our words understood in the original context. So to receive God's word in the Bible, we have to humbly tune in to what God is saying in the Bible. And that takes, we have to tune into the thoughts, the concerns, and circumstances of those who lived 2,000 years ago, those who first heard the words when they were penned. So for Paul, he's writing to uh, Philemon. He's in jail and he's writing to Philemon. So we have to take, what would it mean for Philemon to receive this letter from Paul? We have to put ourselves in that situation. We have to hear as the original audience would have heard. Then we can ask, what does this mean for me today? So today we're going to tackle the question of slavery as it pertains to Philemon, because that's really the heart of what Paul's trying to communicate here. Um, slavery is a huge issue for us as Americans. Uh, some are ancestors of slaves. Um, we all realize that slavery is our great national shame. Uh, we fought a war that claimed over 620,000 lives. This history put a meat cleaver in the church in the heart of the church, in almost every denomination, okay? Um, denominations split over this issue that we're talking about today. 
the Presbyterians split, the Methodists split, the Baptists split, um, all, and they all used Paul's letter to Philemon as part of their biblical justification for slavery. Okay, let's be honest. They used this as their biblical justification. And actually, I would if, you, if this topic really interests you, Mark Knoll did a book called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. It's a great book. Um, he's, he's a historian, but he really, he dives in pretty deep to that, in that, in that book. Um, but these people that had these views were not monsters. Many were faithful, devoted followers of Jesus. They were loving, generous, kind. They were devoted to Jesus, and they were versed in the Bible. Where did they go wrong then, John? They failed to understand Paul's letter to Philemon in its original historical context. That was their fault. That's how they missed it. So let me review this letter for you. There's three main characters. Paul, he's the author of this letter, and he's sending it to his friend Philemon, who came to faith underneath Paul's ministry sometime previous. Then you have Onesimus, which is a runaway slave that finds faith through Paul. And then you have Philemon. Philemon is Onesimus's slave master, owner. Okay? So there's three characters here. So let's read the part that pertains to slavery. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, um, you can follow along. Otherwise, you can follow up on the screen. We're going to start in verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Verse 13. I would have liked to keep him with me so that, I, so that he could take your place in helping me while, on, while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you, do, favor you, you, would, you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from, from you for a little while was that he might, you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me and even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So the reason in the past why this letter was used to justify slavery is simple. Paul returned a runaway slave to his Christian master. Paul did not rebuke Philemon for owning another human being. Um, slavery must have been okay with Paul. That was their thinking. And what we miss in such a reading is the historical context. At this point in human history, slavery was a given, like death and taxes. It just was the way society ran. No one called for its abolition. No one. The runaway slave Onesimus came to faith in Jesus underneath Paul's influence. And as a runaway slave, his life was in danger. He had no standing in society whatsoever. There's nowhere to settle down as a runaway slave. 
there's no Canada to run to. And Paul wrote this letter from prison. He's in prison because of the gospel, okay? And he had no power in that prison cell except spiritual power. Christians were a minority sect within a despised minority religion called Judaism. The empire was not a democracy. The Roman Empire was not. Even citizens of that empire had no voice. Any call to overturn slavery would be viewed as a direct threat against that empire. At this time, people couldn't even imagine a world without slavery and how that would work, yet alone view it as an attainable good. So this was the cold, hard reality 2,000 years ago that God came into and began to work in. And Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, began that long, difficult, hard road. Now the things that we read here that Paul said are charming to us in our historical context. But I want you to know, 2,000 years ago, these would be scandalous things that Paul's talking about here. These are radical things that Paul is talking about here. And we just read it and we're like, oh, that's kind of a nice letter. I, I kind of see what he's saying and see where he's going. But this was scandalous and this is radical in Paul's context. Um, and so the first thing is Paul regarded a runaway slave Onesimus as his own son. As his very own son. And uh, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Um, and that's really unique. We don't have any other examples of, like th of this in history, where a man would say, this slave is my son. And we'll talk about how important that was. But um, before we do that, Russell and Maria Moore, July 2010, they were from the United States. They, they flew to Russia because they wanted to adopt two boys that were in an orphanage. And um, it's, it's difficult to adopt overseas. And, and according to the law, they had to go there once, sign the papers, go back to the States, and then come back again and pick them up. So it was this long, arduous road that they were on. And um, so one day, Russell and Maria, they walked into this orphanage and it smelled, the lighting was horrible, but as they walked down the hallway, they saw room after room with children in beds. And the most eerie thing about the whole scene what it was that it was dead quiet. No kids screaming, no yelling, no laughter, nothing. It was just dead. And they said, what is wrong? Well, we don't understand this. Well, they went and they got introduced to their two future children. Um, one was Benjamin, and the other one was Nathan. And Benjamin and Nathan, they actually just stood at the edge of their bed holding on to the rails, and uh, Benjamin jumped up and down a little bit, but completely silent. Um, and Nathan just stood there stoic, just staring. And they spent a whole week with them. They'd go in as soon as it op they, the orphanage opened, and they would leave as soon as they made them leave. They were there all day long, but this whole time, this whole week that they were there the first time, it was dead silent. Dead silent. And I don't know if, if you know why, but basically, if nobody ever responds to food or comfort or love in a child's life, they just 
don't say anything. They don't cry out any longer. And that's where the, all these kids were. Nobody responded to their needs for love or comfort or food at all. And so they were just quiet. And so they spent this whole week with them. And um, the last day they hugged and kissed them. And they squeezed them. And they, I mean, they played with them for, for this whole week. And they're excited. So, and they, um, Maria's leaving. And as she's walking down the hallway, tears are streaming down her eyes, and she's so sad to leave because she knows it's going to be a couple months before she can come back and get them. And as they're down the hallway, ready to turn the corner, Benjamin screams out. And it was a scream from the gut of his soul. Mom and dad looked at each other, and they ran back, and they hugged him. But the reason why he screamed was because somebody finally saw him. For the first time in his life, somebody said, you are mine. And he knew in his little one-year-old mind that he had somebody that was going to adopt him, that he had a family for the first time Ever. That's why he yelled out at that last moment. And Onesimus must have felt exactly the same way with Paul. He's, Paul says, you're my son. When nobody else could see or hear you, Onesimus, Paul's saying, I see you. I can see you. Because in the ancient world, no bond was closer and more important than the father-son bond. Sons were obligated to obey their fathers for life, not just through high school. <laughs> and your main hope of gaining wealth in the ancient world was your inheritance. There's no public education. There's no middle class. There's no social opportunities to rise up. Everything of meaning, power, and significance in the ancient world flowed through the father-son bond. And to regard, for Paul to regard Onesimus as a son was a profound act of identification. Paul's saying to Onesimus, uh, and he says this here, he says, you're my very heart. I'm sending my very heart back to you. Philemon, my heart is being sent back. A father would see himself in his son. A slave in the ancient world was a son of no one. No one could claim a slave as a child, and no slave could lay claim to his offspring. Slaves didn't marry. They could give birth, but they had no parental rights. They were virtual nobodies. Slaves were virtual nobodies. And imagine Paul, the Apostle Paul, saying, Onesimus, I see you, and you are my son. It's, it's scandalous, guys. It just didn't happen. It didn't happen. And that's where, the, like, the power of this text is understanding the historical context that it was written in. So, having claimed Onesimus as a son, now he urges Philemon to follow his radical lead and regard Onesimus as a brother. 
verse 16, no longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but he's even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. Now, there's a dual meaning here because Paul's the spiritual father of both of them, Philemon and Onesimus, and all of them are members of God's new family. So there's a double meaning here. And we toss family language around today, and it doesn't mean that much today in our culture, does it? So fraternity brothers in college, you know, they, they call them, they're, they're brothers, right? Um, you have the uh, yaya sisterhood that are sharing divine secrets, right? Um, and wh- who are this group of women? They're people that haven't seen each other in 30 years that gather together. So there's like this sisterhood. Um, but I want you to know it was a jarring thing in Paul's time to extend family relationships that status to non-family members. It just didn't happen. So today we use that term really loose, but it didn't happen then at all. And so, and it didn't even happen to other free people, yet alone a slave. Okay? So when Philemon looks upon Onesimus, Paul wants him to actually see his brother. Paul's saying, that's, that's your brother. Paul wants him to see that he's Paul's son. Onesimus is actually Paul's son. He wants him to see Paul himself. So where's this coming from? How is Paul even capable of seeing Onesimus, a runaway slave, in this radical new light? Um, And I want you to know, seeing is a direct, there's a direct correlation between Paul's spiritual awakening and what happened on that road to Damascus and where he's at today, him being able to see Onesimus as a human being. So the history of Saul and Paul, um, he was persecuting members of this new Jesus sect, and he viewed this new Jesus sect within Judaism as a threat to his religion. And on the road to Damascus, the spirit overwhelms him. He's surrounded by this blinding light. Remember the story? He hears a voice from the Messiah. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 9.3. Now, Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't persecuting the Messiah, or at least not in his own eyes. He was opposing people who were undermining his faith. But he was misperceiving those people. They were the Messiah's people. Okay? And the heart of spiritual awakening for Paul was seeing people in a new light. The heart of that spiritual awakening that Paul had was seeing people in a new light, seeing people with new spiritual eyes. And you know who that started with? It started with Jesus. You know who then Paul was able to see next? The disciples of Jesus. And Paul's even able to see a slave as a real person. He's able to see when the rest of society just didn't see. It's because of Paul's spiritual awakening. And as a Jew, Paul viewed the entire earth as a spiritual place, the temple of the living God. It all began with a spiritual act of power. In the beginning, God breathed. God spoke. God announced and created everything. Now, as moderners, we more or less were blind to spiritual power. That doesn't mean it's not so. 
Uh, years before MLK gave his I had a dream speech, he was in Montgomery, Alabama, as a new pastor, and he started organizing a bus boycott. Um, and in the middle of this bus boycott, he would get these phone calls. He was sitting at his table one night, and he answered the phone, and um, obscene words, a death threat came in. He was kind of used to them, but at this point, it was like 25 to 30 times a day he would get these. But at this point, he got this phone call, and here's what they said. Listen, beep, we are going to take all that we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. Now, King, all he did, he, I mean, so he got so many of these, and it was his way he handled it, he just hung up. He didn't, and he would never say anything. He would just hang up. But the issue is those words started to stick to him, and his heart started to falter, and he felt like weak, and like, how can I even do this? How do I actually move forward? And so um, he pours himself a pot of coffee, he sat down at the kitchen table, and he starts to pray. He prays this prayer. Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. I'm afraid. And as he prayed this prayer, King felt the Holy Spirit speak to him, saying this, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth, and I will be with you, even until the end of the world. Fight on. And as that voice washed over his soul, it's as if some, it was, and what happened here is they're, they're spiritual words. Spiritual power was released from God's spirit to Martin Luther King in this moment. And he experienced the nearness of God like never before. This is like a turning point in his life. He experienced the presence of Christ as he had never before. And all of a sudden, guess what? The fears just diminished from his heart. Uncertainty disappeared. And he got up from that table saying, I'm going to fight on. I'm going to move forward. You guys, it all begins with spiritual power. And spiritual power is often hidden and invisible and small and seed-like. It's like a man that has his head down like MLK at his table, and he prays a little prayer, and power, God's power comes and gives him courage and strength. It grows in a frightened man with his head down on the table. When Paul said, Onesimus is my son, my own heart, I want you, Philemon, to regard him as a brother, he was speaking the language of the Spirit. His words were an act of spiritual power. Okay? Now, then in verse 13, Paul's calling Philemon to freely return Onesimus to work with Paul as if Philemon himself would want to do if he were able to. Now, this would have required what historians call manumission. It was the only way in Greek society to release a, 
somebody that was a slave from that lifestyle, but it, it, it meant that you had a lower status in society. You still weren't, you were not given all the rights as a, as a free person in society, you had a, but there was a certain level of freedom that was attained. Uh, but that's not the issue that Paul's dealing with here. That's not the heart of what Paul is talking about at all. The heart of what Paul's talking about is a call for a spiritual awakening that leads to seeing people differently. A spiritual awakening that helps you see the people who are all around you who are created in God's image. You actually start to see people instead of strangers running past each other, driving past each other. When you do this, when you start to see people, it's one of the most powerful things that happen to us. All of a sudden, we start we start experiencing what God feels like when he looks down upon the earth. It's one of the most powerful things that can happen to us. Um, so as I was preparing for this sermon, I, was, I, I went to Costco yesterday, and I'm like, I, I know that I could have, like, I, I want to do this, because I was, pr- like, in my brain, I'm like, I am sure I can see somebody. Like, through different eyes, you know, and I... I went, walked through Costco, and I, would, like, I was just more present and aware that I was trying to see people differently than just as random strangers, okay? So I'm trying, and I have my little pack of vineyard cards ready to go to give them as a reference point for our church. And, you know, I'm all ready to go, right? And, and I'm with Haven, my daughter, she's 10, and we're, we're finishing, we go through the store, tons of people everywhere on Saturday, like, I don't like shopping at all, it's even worse on Saturdays, <laughs> and you're trying to get your cart around people, and there's all these samples, and everybody stops at a sample, and I'm the person that says, I don't want a sample, like, just get me out of the store, <laughs> but I still was trying to say, how do I see people today, and I'm, Haven and I are there, and, you know, like, and I did, I, I said a couple prayers for people as we went, and I would say hi to a couple people, but it wasn't like that one moment that you're waiting for, like a bigger moment. And so I'm, I go out to my car, I, I'm putting everything in, and as I'm putting the last box into my trunk, um, one of the Costco workers said, hey, can I take your cart from, from you? And I said, Sure. And then he, he said these words to me. He looked me in the eyes and said, bless you. And as soon as he said it, I'm like, oh, he saw me. <laughs> I'm, here, I'm here trying to see somebody else. But this young punk kid <laughs> saw me. And guess what? I felt the impact of that small, those two little words, bless you. I felt that. And he saw me, and I was trying to go there on a mission to be, you know, see somebody else, and yet he's, somebody else sees me, and because that's the power behind Paul saying, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you've been. Onesimus, you are my son. I see you. And it changed everything. 
It changed everything. So let me wrap things up. So the debate about whether the Bible supported slavery or not was not the key factor for overturning slavery in the U.S. Uh, Just to be fair, you can muster up evidence if you take out the historical context. You can muster up evidence on both sides. Slavery was overturned when enough people could see a particular slave as a person and apply Matthew 7, 12, the golden rule to them. Do unto others that you would have them do unto you. And then they would start to love your neighbor as yourself. And I want you to know the key text in the church that arose, that arose during slavery years in the U.S., this was the key text. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, this is the key text. But it required a spiritual awakening that caused enough people to see slaves as their neighbors. Does that make sense? So that they could apply the text to them. Otherwise, we can't apply the text, right? If we don't see people, we cannot apply the text. So, here's a radical thought. What if each one of us said, God, we need a spiritual awakening to really see people. To really see your creation. To see the Costco workers and the people at the bank and the people at Albertsons when you get done with work, it's 5.30 and you're trying to order, you're trying to check out, but all the self-check lanes are closed and there's one person at the register and, and the person that's checking their stuff out needs a manager override and and you're frustrated because all you want to do is you just want to get home and have some dinner and peace and quiet. What if we were able to see that worker checking stuff out? What if we could really see them? What if? What if we could see each other here? What if? What if we could see people at our office at work? What if? It takes a spiritual awakening in my heart and your heart. Okay, let me give you a couple practical tips. Number one, do you need a spiritual awakening to see things differently? Jesus tells, tell Jesus about your desire. Ask, wrestle. God wants to awaken you. God really does. It's God's heart. That transformation that Paul had God wants to do that same thing in his whole church. A spiritual awakening to really see the way God sees this world. And somebody's got to be bold enough to say, God, start here with me. Start here with me. But I think um, if you ask, seek, and knock, I, God responds to that. And so some of you are just say, need to say, I, God, I actually need a spiritual awakening because I don't see people. I don't see them at all, and I want to. So ask God for that awakening. Um, and, and be honest with God about that. You know, maybe you need to say, God, I'm sorry that I haven't. I haven't seen. I haven't looked. I, or maybe I've ignored. So be honest with God. Tell God, like, 
what's in the core and what's going on there. Okay, number two. Ask God to help you remember time when he helped you see somebody with new eyes. Ask God to help you in your everyday life to see someone with new eyes with compassion, where we actually see people. So at work, at Target, the coffee shop, even church. And I put even church because sometimes at the most basic level, sometimes we don't even see each other. We're just strangers running past each other, barely bumping into each other. What if? What if it started here and we started to really see each other and love each other and care for each other? And then we could start to do that outside the church walls. Let's see each other. And number three, is there someone in your life right now that you're failing to see with spiritual eyes? This is a Actually, can you guys stand for this one as I talk about it? So is there someone in your life right now that you're failing to see with spiritual eyes? Like your spouse, a roommate, a child, a parent, a boss, a co-worker, your next-door neighbor, somebody that you're in a relationship with? Is there somebody that you're blind to right now, spiritually? Follow the Spirit, Holy Spirit's movement. And follow through with something. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to ask that God would do this for us. That, and, and as our intention is pure before God, God, we, I, we want a spiritual awakening to help us see that, that all of a sudden we would have insight how to move forward and take action here. Because we don't want just to learn about this. Oh yeah, spiritual awakening is great and we need eyes to see. No, we need to embody this and we need to be that kind of people now, right? And so let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and and I, here's what I'd like you to do. Ask the Holy Spirit to highlight somebody in your life. For some of you, it's a child. For others of you, it's a, a co-worker or somebody in this room. And ask the Holy Spirit to highlight that person who you need to see differently. And let the Holy Spirit just fill that, that blank in, okay? So let's sing this song. Um, and let the Holy Spirit fill that in for you. And then tell God, God, I want to I take some action. But let the Holy Spirit, so some of you already have somebody in your mind, but let the Holy Spirit fill that blank in for you, okay? Let's sing together.